We're starting the show, though, with the latest from today's health briefing and BC's top doctor uh, telling people again about this shift when it comes to COVID-19 strategy in BC. We know that contact tracing hasn't worked for a while. Dr. Bonnie Henry has been talking about that. She also talked, though, a bit more about the shift and what things are going to look like moving forward. The Omicron variant is different. So we have adapted how we manage this situation. While most people now will not need testing for COVID-19, it is important that we all have the information we need about what measures we can take to prevent spread of illness and to manage when we are exposed or get sick ourselves. Even with Omicron spreading, most people being tested for COVID-19 don't have it. Yes, we have our highest test positivity rates ever, and it's in the 20% uh, to 30% range. But that means that 70% of people with symptoms who are being tested don't have COVID-19. So we need to put that in context as well. This change aligns with the evidence-based communicable disease principles that we follow when we manage in public health, when we're managing any respiratory communicable disease. Let's bring in Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, thanks so much for being with us again today. Hey, no problem. Great to be joining you. What are your thoughts on this kind of shift? And it's not completely to treating it like a common cold, but there are some aspects I think that people are comparing to that in that if you're a younger person, if you're immunized, if you have mild symptoms, the the direction now is to isolate. And when you feel better, you can get back to things. Yeah. And I mean, first off, we do need to point out that everything that Dr. Henry is really talking about, for the most part, should be in people who have already been vaccinated. And if you are not vaccinated and not simply because you um, can't get a vaccine, such as if uh, you know, you're under the age of five, then you know you really can't sort of say, oh, well, this applies to me as well. And the reason for that is because we now know what the immune system does whether it's vaccinated or unvaccinated, when it sees Omicron and how that differs from what happens if we see, say, Delta. And that has essentially given us the, the, the belief that we're going to have widespread um, sort of infection or exposure at least, but leading to a severe infection is going to be very low likelihood just simply because of the way Omicron works inside of your body. So what Dr. Henry is essentially saying is biological in nature, but it's so hard to communicate in terms of a policy unless you actually know that immunology inside and out. How important do you think is testing or is it important at this point, given the fact she, Dr. Henry was asked about this as well, in that our capacity seems to be done here and well, or, or reached here. So if you're in a younger age group, even mm-hmm. if you have symptoms, it'd be, it's pretty difficult at this point to get a test. Do you need one? At this point, it's not necessarily about whether or not you have COVID. It's really about do you have some kind of upper respiratory tract or even lower respiratory tract infection. And the reason I say that is because right now throughout Canada, RSV is rampant. And it makes you feel the same way the initial stages of Omicron makes you feel. But if you go for a test, all you've done is waste that test because it's RSV. We also have other coronaviruses that are not COVID that are circulating, and we're starting to see some of the other uh, common cold viruses also circulating around, like the rhinoviruses. So really what's happening is everybody who has some kind of symptom is going to want to get a test. 
Why? Because you've been pre-programmed to do that. And I, <laughs> I appreciate that. But now we're at a point where we have COVID or SARS-CoV-2 as just one of a number of these symptom-causing viruses. It's just maybe not worth getting a test simply because just like with all of those, if you have that infection and you have those symptoms, you just stay home until they resolve, which is what we've been saying forever. Right, exactly. And you're right, too. It's amazing how quickly we kind of became conditioned to getting the test. I think it also shifted when it went from the highly invasive tests in the beginning days to now it's really not <laughs> not that big of a deal. I'm not sure people well, be lining up really wanting it when it was that awful, awful tickle your brain oh, test. I know. And, and that's the thing, right, is that as we made tests more home worthy, if you will, or easier to do at home, what we've ended up finding out was that the actual interest and demand for these tests was a lot higher than we initially had thought. And that actually means that the communication was really good at that, at that stage. But now it's kind of like, you know, eh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. A lot of people are not going to feel all that great about having been told this for so long. And now eh, you, you can't, it's not really worthwhile. Do you think then, are we at the stage knowing how much Omicron or, or how, uh, the infection spreads. Yes, we've all likely been exposed. Dr. Henry talked about that. Whether we know it or not, probably everybody has been in contact or, or exposed to the virus. Uh, there are now yeah. questions about the fact, so why is it still a rule? I know that people are being advised, don't travel unless you have to, but people are going mm-hmm. to travel. Does it make sense that people are still required to do a PCR test when returning to Canada? At this point, it really doesn't make a lot of sense other than the fact that we are trying to still somehow find a way to slow down spread through the travel routes. Um, I've known from the very beginning it's not going to work. And I think Omicron pretty much showed us that because we put in the travel bans four weeks after it had arrived in Canada. Like, it just doesn't work. So the reality is that the testing is currently in place because the regulations are there but I would imagine that those two are probably going to disappear come around March or April. All right. What advice do you have then for people? Like you said, we've kind of been conditioned this way as far as avoiding this at all costs, testing and, and making sure that you know for sure if it is if it is COVID. How do you kind of reassure people making this shift that this is the right thing to do and this is actually a good thing? Well, I think it really comes down to the communication of the shift itself. It's not really that big of a shift. We now know how to do everything that I've been telling people to do for the last 10 or 15 years, which is to protect your airway when you know that you're around people who are sick. Um, Stick around your bubble so that you're not hanging out with people who are sick. And if you do happen to be around people who are sick, make sure that you're watching your symptoms, right? I call them the ABCs. But the fact is, is that now everybody knows how to do that. And while for the longest time I was saying use a scarf or use a neck tube or something, we're all pretty good with wearing masks now. So really nothing has changed. We've just simply gone through a large roller coaster loop from my perspective to get right back where we were right before the pandemic. It's just that now everybody knows what I've been trying to tell them to do. And I just hope that they stick with it. I still hold my breath when I walk by people on the, on the street. <laughs> That's because of you. <laughs> I know. I've been doing that for like 20 years and people just stare at me and they're like, did you just hold your breath? No. 
You did, didn't you? You thought that person was infected and didn't tell me. I couldn't. Why? I was holding my breath. I was holding my breath. Um, uh, Dr. Henry made an interesting comment, I thought, today as well, because she was asked again about the idea that Omicron is mild. And she kind of heavily sighed and said she's trying to expunge the word mild from her lexicon because it means something different to, to different people. And we are getting reports from people who are fully vaccinated who have got what they assume was Omicron and say still it kind of knocked them on their butt for a few days or what it was it was a, a, obviously didn't hospitalize them but it wasn't mm-hmm. nothing uh, what do you th- what, what are your thoughts about that yeah i mean when we talk about mild versus severe in an infection perspective or or a medical perspective it's very very different from what we talk about from mild to severe in our regular day to day so when we talk about a medical mild for us that could still be a wallop We've opened up the phone lines, star 9898-604-280-9898. We are continuing our conversation with guest Jason Tetro, who is host of the Super Awesome Science Show, answering your questions about COVID, about the shift in how it's being treated here and in other places as well. Let's go right to the phone lines. And Rick in Richmond, what's your question? Uh, Jason answered a question that I emailed him last spring. He did a really good job and made me happy. Uh, the question I've got is my my sister is a retired RN, and she has been telling me for the last year and a half that because everybody is masked and gowned and done everything right, uh, that there's going to be a whole pile of rhinovirus, cold virus, flu virus, and everything else because your natural immunity is going down. (laughs) No. Um, I'm sorry. Whenever I hear that, I just find it so funny because it just shows a lack of understanding of how the immune system works. What we have is inside of us, there are these things called memory T and memory B cells, okay? And they're there for life. So you never lose them. What ends up actually happening, though, is that if you are not exposed to something, say, over the course of 20 years, or you end up becoming over the age of 70 and you haven't come into exposure to a particular um, type of pathogen, what ends up happening is you may lose some of those cells. But let me put it to you this way. The 1918 pandemic happened in 1918. And in 2018, there were still people from that time who had actual antibodies and T-cells to that exact virus. So no, you do not lose your natural immunity because you're not being exposed to a virus. All right. Well, sorry, Rick. Thanks for the phone call. Appreciate that. Let's go to Clayton in Langley. Go ahead. Oh, thanks very much for taking my call. Uh, first off, uh, uh, much like the uh, previous caller, uh, a, a thank you and sincere gratitude for Jason, who's answered some of my DMs. Uh, I feel so so lucky to be able to have a resource available right at my phone. Uh, anyway, my, my question is uh, we are uh, lucky parents to a new uh, baby girl. We had a daughter on December 13th. Mm-hmm. Mom received uh, both vaccines during her pregnancy. I'm fully vaccinated plus the booster. I guess my question is, we've kind of turned into these crazy new parents that are like, oh, my goodness, we don't want the baby to catch COVID. How how worried and and cautious do we have to be? We've completely limited our our interactions with people. We haven't had Mm -hmm. any visitors come over to meet the baby and that sort of thing. So we're just worried. Like, what, what would happen if she does catch it? Is her immune system going to be able to respond 
uh, based on the fact that mom got the vaccines while she was pregnant. Yeah, I mean, um, one, one question you have to ask is, um, is uh, are you be- uh, breastfeeding? Um, because yes. if you're breastfeeding, yeah. then yeah. there will be some antibodies that will be provided to the baby. However, a baby's immune system is very, very naive, and you definitely do not want to have any kind of infection, um, even if it's just a mild exposure or a gentle exposure. So the idea of keeping your child away from other people, um, it, it's kind of the way it should be, even though um, we're in COVID. It was like that long before that. Um, and, and you just want to limit the amount of people around. And it's called ring protection, but that's really all you're doing is you're making sure that the baby has, for the first six months, the opportunity to start building those antibodies, start building a few of those T-cells so that they can then face whatever happens to come afterwards. And if they're breastfeeding, then that's going to be even better. All right, Clayton, thanks for that. Sarah, we've only got a minute left, so quick question if you've got it. Yes, along the same lines, I have a 15-month-old who wasn't able to get vaccinated when I was pregnant with her. Um, what would you advise the unvaccinated under five who have no protection during this state as we transition? What sort of um, suggestions would you offer? Yeah, so between two and five, they have a bit more of an immune system, um, but it's still only going to be able to be partially protective. So while they may be able to go outside and have some fun and maybe even, you know, be around people for a short period of time, I would also try to limit out that unless they happen to be within that bubble um, that you know happens to be fully negative of uh, any virus, not just the uh, SARS-CoV-2. And I'll be saying that more and more as we go along, any virus, not just necessarily that one. All right, Sarah, thanks for the question and thanks to everybody who called in. And Jason, thanks to you again for being available and joining us and answering the questions and have a great weekend. Well, thank you everybody else too. Have a great weekend. All right, that is Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, talking about how things are as far as treating the virus and responding to the virus here in BC. Well, yesterday on the program, we played a little bit of Annie Dormuth's interview. Annie Dormuth is with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She was speaking on the Mike Smith Show because her organization had raised some concerns about what appeared to be a difference in the legislation compared to what we were expecting when it comes to paid sick leave in this province. And you just heard an ad for that on this station, the five days of paid sick leave that is now in place for workers in this province. Those uh, those at the CFIB, though, saying there appears to be a bit of a change in the wording of the legislation, which could lead to some employees having 10 sick days, double the number. We also talked to Brad McLeod, who is the owner of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. He, too, was expressing concern, uh, saying they're fully on board with the five days. That's what businesses, for the most part, had been okay with. But doubling it or allowing it to be double, in some cases, blindsided them. Well, joining us now is Paul Holden, who is the president and CEO of the Burnaby Board of Trade. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. That's okay. How are you doing? Uh, Great. How about you? Yes, good. Thank you. Uh, You've put an update on this as well on the Burnaby Board of Trade website. So what is your understanding as far as the possibility of some employees in BC getting 10 or being able to access 10 sick days instead of five? Well, well, if you remember, uh, Jill, we, we chatted, um, I think it was uh, uh, in around November time when this first came out. And, and, and I was saying to you at the time that we were, our biggest concerns were around 
why this was being rushed through in the way that it appeared to be with a January 1st start at a time when businesses really could ill afford it uh, and at a time when the government already had a COVID-related sick program in place that could really have been tweaked or amended or extended. And and at the time, you might recall that I I was saying often when things are rushed through like this, there's there's some detail that that perhaps could have done with a little bit more uh, investigation and discussion. I think that's what we're finding now. Um, what we're finding now is that, uh, that you know, some areas in the execution really could have benefited from some more, uh, some more discussion and some more, more uh, thought. Because what we do have now, and I'm, I'm taking this from the government's website, is you have a situation where if an employee was hired in, in let's say, well, the example the government uses is, is May the 1st last year, uh, their employment year ends on April the 30th this year, well, they will be entitled to five days from January the 1st to April the, uh, the 30th uh, of this year. And then from May the 1st, the next five-day uh, sick, uh, sick leave comes in. So it's perfectly possible that, that that employee could have 10 sick days this year. Now, obviously, ultimately, this will catch itself up, itself up and we'll be back to a, a regular five-year. But you know, what's happened here is that the government has mandated how you bring in the, uh, the five-day sick plan, um, which is, is causing uh, anomalies like this, which I would expect weren't intended, but n- nonetheless will be, uh, will be very costly to business. And one of the concerns seemed to be as well that it's not being prorated. It's a straight five days as soon as you start or five days uh, mandated immediately. Is that a concern? Oh, uh, it, it totally is. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the, the non-prorating of it is, is, is really where the heart of the issue lies. Um, you know, we would have been happy to have discussed the way that this could have been implemented. As you know, we had our concerns in the first place, but we'd have been happy to discuss how it could be implemented. But it's now been, been laid out. And, and, and what we're finding now is the lack of prorating of those five days. You know, the example used is April the 30th. It could just as easily be February the 28th. And, and, and you've got somebody taking those five days in the first couple of months and and then they've got uh, the, the rest of the year to use another five. And as I say, it will catch itself up. But, you know, front-loading costs and, or liability of costs to businesses is something that would always be a great concern of ours. It, there seemed to be some confusion or questions as well, though, and especially when we talked to Brad McLeod, who owns a restaurant. He was on the show yesterday. Uh, there was unclear, though, if somebody... So if, if somebody, as of January 1st, has... He'd said if somebody had worked for the company for 90 days, they would automatically uh, qualify for the five sick days. But I was unclear if somebody starts working in, say, mid-March... Do they do they not have to work for any period of time for a company before they qualify, or do they automatically qualify for those five days? Well, no, I think if, if we're talking about somebody starting in mid-March of this year, they have to work for 90 days before they, they, they qualify. And then the five days non-prorated prorated sick, sick uh, pay comes in for this calendar year. Um, I think where the issue is, is, is we're talking about employees who joined last year at some point, particularly in the early part of last year, or, or, or had an anniversary date that was um, you know, potentially quite early on in the year, those are the ones who will find themselves now having you know, five days to take prior to the anniversary date, and then another five kicking in on their anniversary date. All right. So if you joined a company, say, last year in June or July, 
you're starting off this year, say you fall ill this month, you take your five days. Let's say you even had COVID. You took your five days off, you isolated for five days. Those five paid days are done. But then come your anniversary in June or July, what you're saying is given the way it's written right now, you're up for another five days. That's very, very clearly how it's written on the the government website, uh, Jill, and and, and that's, that's the heart of our concern. And so is it is it a matter of the Employment Standards Act branch wasn't talking with whoever wrote the legislation or, or how do you think this happened? Well, I'm not sure. I think it has to have been one of those unintended consequences that we, we, we sometimes see happens in life. And, and um, we would hope that there's a way of, of addressing this and, and engaging with groups such as ours to look at how it might be amended to, to be more fair. Um, and, and that's what we're really looking for is, is you know, we, we voiced our concerns prior to and upon the announcement of the sick, uh, sick leave program. Um, and, you know, once that was all done and dusted, it was then a question of, OK, well, let's make sure it's implemented in the right way and, and, and that the devil in the detail is taken care of. And, and I think what we're seeing here is that the, the, the devil's been kind of left in the, in the detail. And uh, there are some consequences here that we feel are very harsh on business. And, and really should be addressed. Do you get the sense that business is okay with the five days and if it was straightforward and if it was five days that that's doable? Well, it was a mix, to be honest. Um, you know, we had a, when we were looking at our members, you know, we had a, a lot of members saying to us um, that uh, they already had a sick, day pro, a sick leave program in place and they were quite happy with that. We had other members saying they had some other form of wellness program in place, which they were happy with. The general sense we had that was maybe three days was three days was was preferable. Uh, I think there was a lot of concern around its application for casual and contract uh, workers um, because that was something that that we were hearing was going to cause a lot of problem because obviously you then had to kind of um, double pay to, to to cover a shift. Um, so there were concerns around there, but I think we were hearing a lot. You know that this was an area that. Generally speaking, businesses felt was already being handled well by the business community and didn't really need government to mandate. And, and um, so, so, you know, we had those concerns at the time. Uh, we've been hearing since we flagged this potential uh, issue, we've been hearing a lot from our members, as, as, as your, your restaurant owner mentioned on the, on, on the radio uh, recently, that this is something that uh, – uh, we didn't expect to see in the detail, and it's something which is now causing a lot of concern. But when you say it's something uh, that didn't need government to mandate, wouldn't that imply that companies were already okay with sick leave policies or were, especially given what we're dealing with now, were okay with workers being out sick? Well, I think we already had. Um, most of our members already had some form of, of uh, sick leave program in place or, or wellness program, as I, as, as I say. And I think, you know, the sense that we were getting were this was being done re- as much as anything really to reflect some of the concerns around the impacts of, of COVID on sickness in the workforce. And the government had already addressed that with a COVID sickness plan. And, and, and we were the ones saying, well, don't kill the plan that you came up with. Uh, amend it, tweak it enhance it. Uh, we're going through a period now of, of, of Omicron, which may need a revision to that, uh, that, that COVID plan that the government had in place. But let's tweak and enhance what's already in place rather than bring something new into legislation, which already we're seeing has unintended consequences.
And Paul, one other question, because somebody called our buzz line yesterday, uh, a small business owner, and saying that this, especially given the first year with this overlap or with this allowance for the five days, then potentially five other days based on somebody's work anniversary or their work date, uh, saying that it's going to be for a lot of businesses, it's going to be a payroll nightmare. Uh, Are you hearing from people? Is it going to be an issue when doing payroll? It is. Um, it's another piece of, of kind of red tape and administrative burden that businesses neither want nor need. Um, so, yes, there is that. It's now there's a certain way that you have to measure uh, the, 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 the sick leave program. So we're always looking for ways to reduce the administrative burden, not increase it. So the, the, there is that. Um, um, but, but I think as well, you know, you're, we, we, what we don't want to find ourselves in a situation is people either not hiring people or not growing their business or not investing in their business either because they can't or because they don't want to expose themselves to to, to some costs that such, such as we've, such as we're talking about today and I think you know for, for us let, let's just you know we said at the time no need to bring this in right now well it is in right now but let's make sure it's working properly and fairly all right we'll leave it there Paul Holden thanks so much for your time today Thank you. That's Paul Holden, the president and CEO at the Burnaby Board of Trade. Well, if somebody was to ask you, have you been targeted by scam callers? Your answer might not be a simple yes or no. It might be how many times and what day are you referring to? I think most of us have seen those scam calls. Maybe some have even answered the calls. But a new poll is looking at just how prevalent these phone calls are. And Mario Conseco with Research Co. is behind this information and joins us on the line now. Mario, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Great to be here with you. Uh, Not a huge surprise, I'm sure, when you started asking British Columbians about this, whether or not they had been the target of a scam phone call. But what specifically were you asking people? Well, uh, this is a project that we began in September of 2019. We were in the middle of the campaign uh, for the federal election. And we saw a lot of people who were complaining on social media about receiving messages from somebody who was urging them to vote for a specific political party or support a specific policy. And at the time, that was the number one nuisance. Now that we checked again in 2021, uh, what has really skyrocketed is the number of messages from people who are pretending to be part of a government agency or who are leaving you messages in a foreign language. So we went from the nuisance of the political stuff, which is now lower, to a lot of people, essentially half of British Columbians with a cell phone, who have received this type of phone call over the past couple of months. Did you ask people their thoughts on when they get these phone calls? <laughs> Everybody's really upset, of course. You know, this is a waste of time. One of the things that really came across, particularly with the comments, is uh, that people rely on their phones for work. You know, I am one of them. I don't know if somebody's calling me because they want to work with me, because they have a question about a survey. And you answer, and it's somebody else who is claiming to be from the CRA or who is leaving you a message in a foreign language. So when it's your cell phone for work, it's doubly uh, difficult. You know, if it's a cell phone that you're using only to communicate with friends and family, it's a little bit easier. But those who are relying on their cell phone for work are facing this more often than others. Uh, It's just saying that you say that because when I first saw your research and saw the responses, my first thought was, well, I'm somebody who hates talking on the phone anyway. I never answer the phone. But that said, it's my personal phone. So the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get a voicemail from a friend or somebody. But I never answer it. And I especially don't answer it if I don't know the number or if I think the number looks a little bit off. 
Well, what is crucial here and is uh, the way in which the federal government tries to help out. You know, there's a website that says, don't do this. The CRA would never call you to say that there's a warrant for your arrest. <laughs> the CRA would never actually ask you for payment in Bitcoin or gift cards. And the emergence of the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, in a way, was designed for spam emails. You know, if you're getting this kind of email, if somebody's telling you that there's a treasure in Nigeria that is yours, if you only send them a little bit of money, uh, we went from the phone being the main issue to spam. And now we're going back to the phone. We have, we're essentially going back to a situation where people have learned how to deal with spam, with filters, or with other tools. Uh, but we can't really deal with this in the same fashion because the ones who are responsible for these goals are getting more sophisticated. You know, they essentially can show up in your phone as somebody who's calling from the CRA, and that could get people really, really scared. Yeah, and I've heard from people as well, not only CRA, but Canada Post and a bunch of different places where even though they try and make sure the message gets out there that they would never do that by phone, they would never ask for personal information, it can be intimidating. Uh, You mentioned different languages, and there was a while there where I was getting two or three voicemails that were in, I don't even know what language it was, but again, these (laughs) scam calls that were filling up my voicemail. But what I found interesting in your research was these almost seem like they're very targeted and the people who are receiving these scam calls in different languages are in specific groups. Yes, Metro Vancouver is the main target for these phone calls. We have 61% of mobile phone users in Metro Vancouver who have received these messages in Cantonese or Mandarin. Uh, It's not something that is geared towards the East Asian population necessarily. We have 61% of East Asians who I I received these phone calls, but the number is 70% for those of South Asian descent and 47% for those of European origin. So it's not necessarily related to the name that is attached to the number. They have access to a bunch of numbers from Metro Vancouver. They assume that most of the people who might answer the phone and be essentially threatened by whatever it is they're saying are going to pick it up. And they're in Metro Vancouver. So it's complicated in the sense that it's a numbers game. They don't mind if they're calling a bunch of people who don't understand the message as long as they can get to one who is going to take the phone call and be threatened. Hmm. Uh, Your finding also says that only 18% of mobile phone users in BC received a text asking if they support a specific party or a policy. Do you think, does that show that political parties maybe have realized this isn't the best way to communicate with people because A, either people are going to be annoyed with you or they're just going to assume you're a scam caller and ignore you? Well, we saw a little bit of that change from 2019 to 2021. Uh, People in 2019 were getting a lot of these messages sharing some hilarious responses on social media because they weren't happy because they were being targeted by a party they did not support and a party that should not have had their cell phone number in the first place. It was a little bit different in 2021, and we haven't seen that type of message being used a lot. I'd be curious to see what happens in the Ontario election later this year, because that is that what really spearheaded this type of operation where you're blanketing everybody with phone calls to ask people if they support a specific party or another. We saw it drop in the last federal election. Maybe we will see it in Ontario as well. Did anything stand out for you in this? Uh, this, I mean, you must have thought going out asking people about scam calls, obviously you're going to get people who, yes, have been the target of these. Did anything stand out or was anything surprising when you were getting responses from people? 
The one thing that was really interesting is, uh, aside from the targeting in Metro Vancouver uh, with the phone calls in Cantonese or Mandarin, everything else is fairly stable. You know, it's essentially somebody who can secure a list of phone numbers uh, and, and have the services of our of an auto dialer and just dial away you know they're not really trying to get to somebody because they know who that person is they are they are just trying to get to anybody who can answer the phone and this is what makes this very problematic a lot of these operations aren't even happening here so even if somebody were to pay them even if you're trying to recover the money even if somebody you know has been uh, essentially the victim of this fraud trying to get back at them is very very complicated so more information we have about this and the quicker we can hang out the phone the better it'll be for everybody and what about when you you kind of touched on this though the um the federal government's the kind of the anti-spam policies so depending on your phone carrier there might be a security setting that you can put in and try and stop these calls or these no call lists did you ask people at all about that or if they think there are enough measures to protect people from these scammers well, there's a certain satisfaction with the fact that the office exists. I think part of what we saw this time around and also in 2019 is that people are aware of the existence of the anti-fraud center, but they're not reporting the numbers. And part of the problem is you may not even know what number it is. You have a message from somebody, but you can't really access the phone. And that is part of the problem here. You know, it says CRA. We all know that it's not coming from the CRA, but I can't access the number. So even reporting has become difficult over the past couple of years. All right. Interesting findings, as always. Mario, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. All right. That is Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. Well, some sad news today. Meatloaf, the heavyweight rock superstar loved by so many people. You likely recognize that song known so well for his Bad Out of Hell album, for those anthems, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. It goes on and on. He passed away at age 74. His family providing a statement today announcing that he had passed away. So let's take a look back at his life and his career and who better to do that with than Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. And Eric is on the line with us now. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, happy to do it. Uh, what were your thoughts when you heard that Meatloaf had died? Um, that uh, the, the very first thought is I, I, I wish I still had the vinyl record that I had when I was seven that I stole from my sister, uh, Bad Out of Hell. And the second is that just how many things um, you know, meatloaf should not have happened. I mean, that's the bottom line. To look like that, to sing like that, to be able to merge pop and rock and opera and schlock together and sell 45 million copies of an album that nobody in America wanted to pick up in terms of a record label. It took them three years and 17 record labels in America to find a small label that nobody had heard of called Cleveland International and they ended up selling about 46 million copies around the world, the third biggest selling album uh, of all time I, I mean there were so many things that you look at Meatloaf that there's no way that he would have been a success but here we are and with every reason to celebrate um, those rare cases where it's a one in a billion shot and he did it so what is it, do you think, was it a combination of things? Like you said, there were so many things to list why he, he likely or could, shouldn't have made it. What was it, do you think, that helped to get him to where he was? 
I think because he found success on the Broadway stage in Hair and then Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, again, a movie that was so bad that it was a classic almost instantly because it was so bad. But because he had that background of theater and being an actor, he realized that he could actually bring this to the stage and not compete with the Mick Jaggers of the world or the Peter Gabriels in Genesis or the Bee Gees or, or any of those, those artists in the 70s. He knew that if he could kind of bring the theater to rock music and have it so over the top and have songs that were eight minutes long or 14 minutes long, not only would it give the DJ enough time to go to the bathroom after playing, you know, six songs in a row of two minutes each, but it would give those outsider music fans, people that, you know, were geeks, people that, you know, were okay with being different they found their soulmate in somebody like Meatloaf, who was able to tour the world and um, and have massive success that very few people have actually seen. Did you ever meet him? Um, I met him once in Toronto a number of years ago. He was promoting the Bat Out of Hell, um, the the rock kind of you know theater uh, tour, and I asked him because uh, I always wanted to know in Paradise by the Dashboard Light. They have Phil Rizzuto, who was the New York Yankee sportscaster, in the middle of the song. And when I was a kid, I I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought, really, he was doing play-by-play of, of a baseball game. And it wasn't until I was a teenager when I realized, oh, he's actually talking about a makeout session. And, like, here we go. And this is yeah. And I asked him if Phil actually knew what he was doing. And Milo said, absolutely he knew what he was doing and, and talking about and where it was going. If you talk to Phil, who was a devout Catholic, he would say, I had no idea what was going on. So I don't know who to believe, but it was really fun asking him that. <laughs> I guess he would have to say that, wouldn't he? I, did, I didn't know what I was doing. No. Yeah, you, look, when fact and fiction meet, you publish the fiction. <laughs> exactly. It's such a, an interesting thing to think back because I remember listening to that song so much. And it's funny, I hadn't thought about it in years, but I still do have the vinyl. I have the, the record that I listened to uh, in, in many, many years ago. And everybody knew that song. And it wasn't as though it was the best song on the planet. It was kind of weird with the, the, with the, comment, the, the sports commenting in the middle of it. But everybody knew that song and everybody knew the words to it. Well, that's because if you bought a car in 1970, it came with an ashtray, and it also came with a copy of Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell on 8-Track already in the player for you. Um, I mean, everybody had a copy of this. There was, you know, when you look back at the biggest albums of all time, so many of them were from the 70s with Fleetwood Mac's Rumors and the Eagles' Greatest Hits and Steve Miller's Greatest Hits. Um and Saturday Night Fever and Dark Side of the Moon. Bad Out of Hell was one that stood out, I think, more than any other album because it didn't fit anything else that was going on. At least with Pink Floyd, you can say, all right, it's psychedelic. Or Saturday Night Fever, you know, all right. You know, disco was really big. Or Fleetwood Mac, it was like, oh, it was about divorce and breakups and everybody can go through that. But when you go through Meatloaf's lyrics... It was it was like a fantasy world. It was like Star Wars. And you watch the videos of him in a robe, in a castle, um, with a storyline that was like Beauty and the Beast. It was 
so bombastic and so out there and so beautiful and 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 um and glorious all at the same time it really was amazing to to watch that unfold and realize that things like this can actually make it and when you talk to about the length of the songs, so many of them were so lengthy and you look at the lyrics and the lyrics, it's, it goes on and on and on. It, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, again, when you talked about the the sports commentary, uh, I thought as well of the I would, I'd do anything for love and there's the female voice in there as well. Did he do yeah. that? Do you think that it was important that his music, not only was it so different and again, the length of the songs, but bringing other voices into it? Yeah, especially because he was going out with Ellen Foley at the time, and she went on to um, have the starring role in Night Court. And Ellen is the voice on the record, um, but there's another woman that went out on tour with Me Love because Ellen didn't want to go, and that's the woman that you see um, in the video. And it was important to have that that kind of voice in there because he brought that theatrical element in there. Everything that he did and that Jim Steinman, his his co-writer, co-producer, co-everything, they wanted to do things in character. They wanted to have that level of, you don't need to know who Meatloaf really is, because he's really nobody. He's Marvin from somewhere in the United States that doesn't have a really great history in terms of being cool or one of the gang or popular. But in order to have each song of its own storyline, it it was almost like theater of the absurd, where if you didn't have anything to write about, well, let's pretend that we're this person. Let's pretend that we're longing for somebody or we've just been scored for somebody or, you know, that you want somebody and you need somebody, but you don't love them, but it's okay because two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> it's an interesting way of putting it too, because you're right. When And I had forgotten completely some of the things that he had done as far as doing um, hair on Broadway. I uh, remember he'd had a small role or he had a role in Fight Club and that he yeah. was this huge entertainer selling 65 million copies of that record. But honestly, I would recognize him in a picture, but I could probably also just have, well, have passed him on the street and would not have blinked an eye, would not have known that I just walked by Meatloaf, which I'm guessing would happen to him all the time. Yeah, probably, you know, or I mean, he just looked like your average everyday character with long hair um, and didn't dress, you know, sparkly in the streets, didn't have a large entourage. I mean, in the 70s, he was hanging out with the Saturday Night Live crew. In fact, he was um, John Belushi's understudy for some of the National Lampoon tours um, that they did during the off season just to keep their comedy chopped out there. Um, you know, he did that movie with Blondie called Roadie, which was awful, which is probably so good right now because again, it's just, it's so over the top and, and so schlocky that those movies just cannot be made anymore. You know, the fact that Rocky Horror ever, ever became popular um, it's just a, a, a movie miracle. And in fact, when Rocky Horror came out, it bombed. And the the record was deleted within a year, meaning that the, that the record label stopped manufacturing it. The only place in the world that kept manufacturing Rocky Horror was right here in Canada. And we actually had a large part of that success in Windsor and Vancouver and Toronto. And that kind of spread back the word that, 
hey, there's uh, there's a really campy movie that you need to check out. And that kind of built, you know, another career for Meatloaf. Hmm, interesting. Um, TMZ is reporting that he had become quite outspoken about COVID and vaccine mandates and that he had become ill with COVID. Do you think that's going to tarnish his legacy? I don't know. I think that people have a really short memory when it comes to celebrity stuff anyway. I think that we're pretty much forgiven a lot um, when it comes to famous people. I think that if it if, if the last 18 months, 24 months of his life, he came out as an anti-vaxxer, got sick, and then unfortunately passed away from COVID, I think that the snark would be on 10 right now in terms of social media. But he kind of kept it as quiet as he could uh, about his feelings with whatever side that anybody happened to be landing on. Um, so I don't think that it, it harms it. I think that just, I, I think we're just all coming to the realization that, you know, people have their own views from their own different times of, of their lives. And, and, you know, we should just kind of celebrate the fact that they were here, that they created music that really both sides, whatever you feel politically, pretty much loved. All right. Well, a lot of people, I think, are going to be uh, looking for those old albums today and playing some of his music in, uh, in a tribute. Eric, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about Meatloaf today. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. All right. That is Eric Alper. He's a music publicist and a commentator. And again, Meatloaf, who was born Marvin Lee Ade, died yesterday. That, according to a family statement, he was 74. Thanks for being with us. Well, we've been taking some time to talk about the new sick day policy in BC. As you likely know, workers in this province are now able to get up to five sick days. That came into place on January 1st. A big relief for a lot of workers who in the past would have had to decide between going to work sick, which we all know is a huge no-no given the pandemic especially, or taking that cut in pay and figuring that out. So a lot of relief there. We've also been been talking to businesses about this and one of the concerns is this potential for overlap in the first year that could actually lead to workers getting 10 sick days in some scenarios. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Ravi Kalon, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation in BC. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Hi, Jill. Uh, thank you for having me. I know a lot of this also falls under uh, the the Ministry of Labour, but thank you so much for joining us. Do you know, are you able to clarify what it, what it means as far as sick days? Will there be employees who, if they were hired, say, mid-year last year, would they get the five sick days for the first half of this year, starting in January, but then also qualify again when they get to their work anniversary? Well, Jill, uh, first off, thank you for covering uh, paid sick days. I think it's an important topic, and we know we don't want to see workers that are uh, sick going to work, and that's the whole premise of this because, you know, when people take it to the work site, to to their employment, other people get sick, and then there's major disruption to everyone. Uh, And so, yeah, there may be scenarios where um, uh, a worker who has been uh, um, you know, their employment year starts in, say, February, and they may have had to use a couple of days before that, and then their new five days start after that. But there are a lot of what ifs, what ifs in that equation, um, because what we know is before we brought the paid sick days in, almost 50% of workers in British Columbia had some level of paid sick days already. And so we're talking about other workers 
that are now coming to the workforce, now getting access to this. And, uh, and, and there may be some situations where an employer has an employee that, let's say, started in June last year. They get the, the days now, but then they start again. But the, the next cycle of year, they have to be cautious on the five days because they only have five days. And the research is clear. People use them only when they're sick. Uh, right. So, but just to, to be clear then, because that's, I think, where some business owners are, are a bit taken aback that even though it is only for this one year where we're seeing this overlap, there could be scenarios where businesses brace to give each worker or to be able to pay out for five sick days per worker. But if they have a lot of workers that fall in that scenario, they could be paying out double. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's in the, the year of the employment. So, uh, if, for example, uh, an employee was hired in, let's say, September uh, last year, and so they've got five sick paydays. But what we've seen from the research, uh, Jill, uh, from all jurisdictions around the world, because having paid sick days is not a new thing. It's something that's been uh, in place in many jurisdictions around the world, is people don't use all their paid sick days. They use them when they need them. Uh, and it's not a system that has been abused, and the research is clear. And so there may be cases where an employer has uh, an employee that used a couple of days in, let's say, July, and then September it starts again. But, again, we don't expect that to be a major issue for employers. We certainly haven't heard it to this stage, but we're going to continue to to watch that as this program rolls out. When you say the research is clear, and I would like to hope, uh, and, and although some of our listeners have called me a bit naive, I would also like to hope and believe that people don't abuse the system. But but there are people that do. And everyone's worked in a workplace where there's somebody who is only ever sick on Fridays or only ever sick on Mondays. So there is some abuse of the system. So when you say the research is clear that people don't abuse the system, what research is that? Well, there was a major research done out of New York, which has uh, way more sick days than us, paid sick days. Washington State has done some research. There's lots coming out of Europe as well, who are well beyond 10 days in most jurisdictions of paid sick days. And uh, even the research that was done by the Ministry of Labor here found that employees or workers who had five, even longer paid sick days often use two or three uh, paid sick days in, in a year. So, uh, you know, I think there's always a sense of, you know, somebody abusing the system. That happens with every program. But we just haven't seen that in other jurisdictions. There's always a few bad apples. And don't get me wrong, uh, I know there'll be a few bad apples. But there's other measures that employers have to ensure that uh, the workers are actually doing this for the right cause and not uh, abusing the system. Right. And like you said, one of the big reasons for this is now more than ever, it is so important for people not to go to work sick and to not to spread whatever it is that they might have. Uh, that said, though, again, with the concerns about the potential for for this this double up for the first year, why couldn't it have been a system that it's prorated? I mean, a lot of companies do have when you start your vacation days are prorated or your sick days are prorated. So why couldn't that have been this system as well? Well, there was a whole host of options, but uh, this one made sense to roll out because it's similar to some other jurisdictions. Uh, our main objective was to get this program in place, um, make it uh, a program that people can adjust to. Again, 50% of, uh, of employees in British Columbia already had paid 60 days, and, and they've already got a system in place. This was ensuring the other 50% get access to it. But every jurisdiction in the country 
has got a slightly different program. Many jurisdictions that are uh, in the U.S., for example, or Europe, have a slightly different uh, in every jurisdiction. We always knew, uh, Joe, when this program rolled out, there would be challenges along the way. This, that's what happens when you have something brand new roll out. But overall, in the end, this is about keeping workers safe and also about increasing productivity in the workplace. Because when people come to work sick, that means others have potential to get sick. It means people are not working to their uh, their maximum mobility, and there's a, a loss there as well. So there's a flip side of this uh, um, discussion that is very important as well. Uh, when we talked earlier today as well, we were chatting uh, with the Burnaby Board of Trade because they had put out uh, some of their concerns about this. And we did get a couple of calls from business owners uh, saying they fully support this for, for the reasons that you just gave, that yes, people are going to get sick. That's a given. You don't want somebody sick coming to the workplace, that they fully were in support of the five days. But they also made the comment of there's there's also the employee health tax that has been downloaded to businesses. And again, with this one year of that potential increase of days up to 10 days for some workers saying something's got to give or that they would have hoped that maybe the government uh, if there is that overlap maybe the government would have picked up the extra days beyond the five days do you think there's any room to still have those conversations well we had a program last year jill uh, where we would cover uh, workers that would um, uh, not be able to go to work because they're sick uh, with covid uh, and we saw very little pickup and it just shows you um, that people don't use the program for the sake of pro- using the program. Um, we know um, that we have uh, a lot of businesses where this is the new thing for them. And, uh, you know, as I said, 50% of employees have had a system, 50% it's new. So it's going to take some time for many of our businesses to adjust. But again, the research shows us from other jurisdictions that it means better productivity. It means a healthier workforce. And quite frankly, we're in a tight labor market. And many businesses we're already going in this direction because they saw it as an opportunity to retain talent and get people to come work for them. So it hits uh, multiple uh, different uh, objectives, I think, for employers. Uh, And of course, it will be a bit of a challenge as the program is rolling out this year. And so do you anticipate then that the the bit of the challenge then that this one issue that's been raised by some businesses of the potential for 10, uh, do do you anticipate then that things will get worked out or or there will be any tweaks to the system as we move forward with it? Well, uh, you know, we are going to continue to monitor it. Every time we roll out a program, we monitor, we look to see what's happening. We look to see where there's issues. and, uh, And if we find that there's some major issues, we make some adjustments. Um, but that being said, Joe, uh, again, if an employee gets to September, uh, there, you know, most people will only use the paid sick days if they need them. What worker would want to take a day in September, October, November when they know they've got a full year ahead of them and they may get sick the following year? And so I think there's, a, there's just too many what ifs involved in the different scenarios to get a real sense of uh, what the impact may be. Right, but in, but in that scenario that you just laid out, there would be more, it wouldn't be as daunting to take a couple of days if you knew that your work, your work hire date was coming up and it resets and another five days are available following that date. Yeah, but, but in that logic, you'd see from other jurisdictions, people would be taking the maximum amount of day paid sick days every single year, but that just isn't the case. Even in BC, we've seen that people have seven, 10 days, they government employees, but they're still taking less 
three, maybe five days. So people are not abusing the system. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make, Jill, right. uh, is that people use them when they're sick. Of course, if an employer sees that a worker uh, is, you know, taking off every Monday and making a long weekend, the employer can ask for a doctor's note. They can, uh, they do have uh, steps they can take to ensure that the person is being truthful. Um, but it's just not something that we've uh, seen from other jurisdictions, and uh, we're going to continue to monitor it as there will go. Uh, and just one other question. This is somebody that called in with this question earlier, and I realize this isn't to provincial jurisdiction, but he was saying he works for a federally regulated uh, company, and it's uh, I would imagine it's one of the few. I don't think there are that many federally regulated industries that don't have sick days, but he works in one saying that they don't, so they're not having to adhere to the provincial rules. Are you concerned there are still going to be workplaces like that that don't have policies like this in place where people might still be, still might try and push it and go to work even if they're not feeling 100%? Well, that's always a risk, and especially in this type of an environment, I don't think anybody wants that. Uh, and the federal government has made a commitment to go for 10 days uh, for federally uh, regulated workers, so those working in banks and airlines, etc. cetera. Uh, and so we're waiting to see what they do uh, to ensure that those workers get coverage as well. All right, Minister, I appreciate you being available to talk with us today. So thank you so much and have a good weekend. Thank you, Jill. Stay safe. All right, you too. That is Ravi Kalon, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation here in B.C.